Hunter Coates is an undergraduate student and an aspiring academic. Currently, he is pursuing a philosophy and history double BA at Georgia College and State University. After graduation, he plans to work towards a PhD in philosophy. In February 2023, Hunter published his first full-length text titled Conspiracy and Subject, a Lacanian Enterprise. He will likely publish future works in tandem with his commitment to formal education. So I haven't read the book yet, but I'm hoping to certainly delve into this. And then perhaps we could do a, a you know, another episode just purely on the book, because there's a lot to go through in this. Uh, but sure. to, to to get started, firstly, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. I appreciate it, mate. Um, firstly, to get started, uh, just a very, very open-ended question. You uh, describe yourself in your YouTube bio as a agnostic Hegelian Lacanian. So what's that? Yeah. So I call myself an agnostic Hegelian Lacanian because I first identify my religious uh, preferences. And I don't call myself an atheist. I prefer agnostic because I believe in an epistemic sense that I do not have knowledge of a God, nor will I ever be able to have knowledge of a God. Um, in the sense that I do not believe we can have full credence of there being a God. I believe we can believe it, there can be a high credence for a God, but to say that there is knowledge of a God, or that I do not have knowledge of a God, um, I don't believe that's possible. So that's why I say agnostic. I take the literal definition of it. I think a lot of people change the word atheism, agnosticism around, but I like to take the original definition. Um, so why do I call myself a Hegelian Lacanian? Well, because I take a lot from Hegel, I take a lot from Lacan, and I use both writers and read them interchangeably. Read Lacan through Hegel and Hegel through Lacan. Uh, uh, especially reading Lacan through Hegel is very interesting because Lacan himself was, you know, inspired by Hegel. But um, I would say that the Hegel that Lacan was inspired by is very different from the Hegel that I am inspired by. Um, we can go into that later, but yeah. Functioning. That's my Google Home. I'm sorry about that. Um, but but so on on the topic, I, I totally get your point on agnosticism, and I I I concur. I I totally agree. Even though I still identify as a as a postmodern Christian, um, mm -hmm. I I get the idea how agnosticism at, at a purely as you said, at an epistemic level, it, it seems to be a, a, a fair position, position to take. But I'm curious, though, uh, well, well, firstly, Hegel and Lacan both are notoriously difficult thinkers. Mm -hmm. uh, so what piqued your interest in Hegel and Lacan? Yeah. Um, so um, basically, I would say that when COVID hit, I was in my junior year of high school. Uh, I was in March of junior year, just shows how young I am. But it was a March of junior year, and uh, I was starting to read more um, books, right? There was a long time in my life from probably sixth grade to until this point where I did not read. As a child, I read a lot. I read fiction, Percy Jackson, um, Harry Potter, all that yeah. stuff. But yeah. from about sixth grade to 10th grade or 11th grade, I had never read anything really outside of school. Um, and COVID gave me this opportunity to sort of get back into reading because all my friends could not hang out. The, the, the pandemic was going on. And so I fell back in love with reading. Um, now, I, didn't, I did not start with Lacan and Hegel <laughs> then. I, uh, I believe the first book that I read back in my getting acclimated with reading and reading more difficult works was uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger, which... Latonche, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Big, big, uh, big difference from Hegel and Lacan, but you got to start somewhere. And um, from there, I sort of just took this very weird path. I was I was reading various um, essays from Lenin. I read a couple of essays from Marx. Uh, I read a couple of essays from more like capitalist thinkers, uh, Friedrich Hayek, uh, Ludwig von Mises. And I was just sort of figuring out where I am uh, in terms of my economics, my political economy and things like that. Um, I didn't really get into philosophy until I would say the beginning of freshman year of college, which for me was last year. So last year at the beginning, um, which would be, I suppose, um, August of 2021, uh, around then I began to get more into uh, philosophy. And the first philosophy book, that I, I don't count Camus, right? But the first philosophy book that I read was a very random. It was Baudrillard's System of Objects from 1955. Okay. Yeah. Quite I'm random. Yeah. I will I've read about him, but never his original work. Yeah. 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 Uh, Baudrillard's great. Um, I liked the book a lot. I didn't understand much at the time um, when he would cite people like Freud or he would cite people like Hegel or Kant or people that were also alive at the time when he was writing Deleuze, Foucault. And um, Certainly I was, I didn't get the whole picture, but I got a couple things that I liked and I was like, oh, wow, I really like this Baudrillard guy. Um, I'm going to read a couple people that he talked about. Well, one people talked about was Freud. And um, as someone who grew up in America and did um, English classes in high school, I was relatively familiar with Freud. I was familiar with the straw man of Freud that uh, I think a lot of American students are taught. Um, so I, I was wanting to Oh, this guy Freud, I thought he was this crazy lunatic. Why is this serious guy citing him? He's crazy. And um, I hopped into Freud. And at that point, I was like, oh, he actually has a lot of insightful comments to make. And from there, it was just like finding Slavoj Žižek through YouTube clips, going through him to Lacan. And yeah. Yeah. In fact, I found you also mm -hmm. thanks to our, our, perhaps our, our mutual intellectual hero in some sense, Zizek, because I was trying to understand uh, the difference between uh, drive and desire because Lacan and Zizek, they, they talk a lot about that and I just couldn't get it. And I watched your video on it, which we'll get to a, a bit later. Uh, so when it comes to, again, just to, back to what you said, you, were, you first were exposed to Baudrillard and then of course Freud and then Lacan and Hegel and Zizek. But maybe I'll, I'll ask, ask it this way so generally uh again I'm, I'm speaking here as a neophyte when we think of like philosophy some introductory philosophers you'd probably be exposed to out of course the greek antiquity socrates plato whatever and then there's kant for sure right but i i don't know uh and please to correct me if i'm wrong if hegel is a philosopher that's that's spoken about a lot in the anglo-saxon western world as much as let's say so-called continental philosophy does. So perhaps I'll, I'll ask the question this way, uh, Anta. Why do you think Hegel's important? So that's the first yeah. part of the question. And the second part is, uh, sorry, let me, let, let me put it in a, in a triad structure. So, so three parts. Perfect. Why do you think Hegel's important? Uh, what's the differences according to what the way you read it between uh, Kant and Hegel? And then what is this? I've heard this term used quite a lot, this metaphysical shift from Kant to Hegel is that too much to package to one question or should should we deal with it we can, deal we can take it at a time um yeah. I mean yeah so the first one why why do I read Hegel why do I think Hegel has something to say that's important 
Um, so we're going to have to go back to Kant for this, as you sort of always do when you talk about Hegel. <laughs> yeah. And what Kant basically did was he read David Hume and he was like, David Hume got a lot right. He's totally right that we cannot know things if they do not already exist in the empirical world. But what David Hume did not understand was that there is an a priori role in this. There is a sense that we have to have knowledge before we can experience things. And we have to understand this knowledge as the preconditions of experience. In that sense, we need there a sort of knowledge to experience things. From the rationalist, he understood the a priori reasoning. So what, what, what Kant called this is the Copernican revolution. Uh, he, 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 was, he, he built it off Copernicus when Copernicus basically did this whole thing where he was like, oh, actually the, uh, the, the uh, heliocentric model is wrong. It's the geocentric model we should go with. Um, and Kant said that he was doing his own Copernicus type revolution in philosophy because he was saying, yes, it's so true. We have to have this understanding of the empirical world that that's really all that's out there. We can't engage in speculative thinking. We're just kind of just making things up. But we also have to recognize that there are these preconditions for being able to think the external world. And that is what David Hume did not realize according to Kant. So when does Hegel come into this? Well, Hegel's whole thing is why did Kant begin with the preconditions of thinking about being? And why not, like the ancients did, being qua being? Or you can say, why did Kant not begin with thinking about being as such, rather than thinking about the preconditions to think about being. And this is where Hegel's very important because what he does is he reads all of the history of philosophy sort of as a prelude to his system that I would argue that he himself does not think he completed. I think that people who think that Hegel was this egocentric maniac, uh, they clearly haven't read it. Hegel, isn't it? It's a bit of a caricature of Hegel. That it's a character. Yes. All of philosophy so comes to his philosophy ends at his philosophy in some sense. Yeah. 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 Uh, I would say, I would say the the main proponent uh, of that view was Bertrand Russell. Uh, Bertrand mm. Russell called Hegel like a evil maniac. Something called evil. He called him like a maniac master, egomaniac. I think even uh, Karl Popper. I think a lot of the kind of the the logical positivistic types mm -hmm. thought of Hegel in that way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Most definitely. And um, but what Hegel really does is he looks back at the history of philosophy and he, he thinks the history of philosophy began with Thales. Very interesting person. He's a pre-Socratic. He yeah. thinks that he was before Socrates. And Thales' whole thing was that everything is water. <laughs> he believed that everything in the world, the primary element of everything, could be condensed down to water. And why does Hegel begin with this? Well, he thinks Thales was the beginning of philosophy because Thales was the first person to think being as such. That is, think being as not just not just as um, numerical numbers, but think being. Think trying to create this one principle of all of being, all of metaphysics. And he thinks that Thales and Parmenides were the first to do this. Um, Sorry, Hans, can I, can I interrupt you there for a bit? So yeah. let's try to break that down a little bit for, uh, you know, again, a layperson like myself. So, okay, it's hard to use kind of like empirical examples for this. So being as such for Hegel, it wouldn't be uh, the kind of the, okay, let me let me ask you the question. Um, perhaps using an example, how would you try to 
elucidate or expound on that Hegel's point of thinking mm -hmm. qua being or being as such. Yeah. So um, we're already in very abstract because what we have to think of is not any determinant being like a cup. We can't think of a cup. We have to think of the presence of the cup itself, right? <laughs> um, not the shape of the cup, not anything else, but just the present of it existing. That's what being means in philosophy. So Thales believed that everything could be reduced down to water. The presence of everything could be reduced down to water. Um, that's sort of what I mean. Mm, so it's not just uh, because generally, would, would Kant be doing the same thing as let's say a scientist would do where you look at a system of objects and you study its properties and characteristics, whatnot, but Hegel is saying, go even beyond that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that, that that would work um, because this, 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 this analogy makes sense because a lot of scientists are empiricist. And so Kant was highly influenced by David Hume, as I mentioned. Um, and so Kant basically says, let's begin with the thinking about what being is and the preconditions for being able to think about what being is, being able to experience the world, basically. And Hegel says, no, we already know what being is. We experience the world. Um, we, we have a unity of being and knowing. Where Kant said, no, we do not have a unity of being and knowing. Oh, okay. That last bit, I think that it, it clicked there for me. So, <laughs> okay, I understood, understood, which is kind of why. Uh, so, sorry, if I could just suddenly make a leap here, then it, it, does this relate to Hegel's idea of uh, absolute knowledge or absolute knowing? Uh, that's a big leap. But, Suddenly, um, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, we can <laughs> we can go into that. It's going to be um, okay. Yeah. Um, so absolute knowing. There's a lot of different readings of it. Um, I prefer the most. Some people say mystical reading, um, but I think it's the most accurate. I think it's what Hegel intended, and it is that. Absolute knowing is what Aristotle called nous. It is thought thinking itself. Um, Hegel quotes um, uh, the Aristotle's term of the prime mover in his uh, section of absolute knowing, the phenomenology of spirit. He quotes, uh, he, quote, he mentions the prime mover and he says that the prime mover is that which thinks itself, mm. the being that thinks itself. And this is absolute knowing for Hegel. It's the, it's, it's the, um, Oh yeah, we're gonna get very abstract because this is a very yeah yeah. yeah. I, I I should I feel like I I've kind of threw threw you a, a curveball there. I suddenly kind of no, knowing is no, spoken about knowing. knowing. It's just it's just we're we're gonna get very abstract, and I, and no, I no, that's totally fine. Like I mean, just just to clarify, Hunter, like there's no problem at all with you being abstract because I don't expect you to like dumb down everything because some things can't be dumbed down. You know, you can't just you need to be abstract because that's. We, we, we're, we're talking philosophy here so uh you know as i said carte blanche to discuss and expand on these things as as you will so go for it mike yeah so again we were talking about aristotle's prime mover um that which moves itself that which thinks itself aristotle's nose as well and for hegel what this means is that there is a unity of the there is a unity of all existence and that unity of all existence thinks itself and that thinking is the reality that we experience. The coming to be of things in this world, the coming to be of our reality throughout history is precisely this, this being thinking itself. 
And that is absolute knowing. And when we re and, 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 and when we think about absolute knowing, we look back at all these various stages of history, what, what Hegel calls shapes of consciousness and phenomenology of spirit that we've experienced. For instance, we'll look back at Greek spirit. Greek spirit was torn between um, nature, basically like nature be like things, um, and spirit. Spirit is the geist. Geist is the geist. mind. Yeah. Is the, yeah. Um, and so what Greek spirit is, it's torn between mind and uh, spirit and nature because for instance we can imagine the very po the popularity of statues in greece what is a statue in greece well it is a rock that is in the shape of man it is a it is a rock in the shape of spirit this is to say that in greek spirit spirit man's realization of his own freedom has not reached the the, the final point of itself that's why it's enclosed quite literally in rock which is why sculpture for hegel was the most important art in Greek in Greek life because it exemplifies the point that yeah. literally very interesting. I didn't think of that. Yeah, that literally, uh, nature is is enclosing spirit. Um, and this this stage of history, we can look at Roman stage of history where we have the three archetypes of the skeptic, the stoic, and the um, oh gosh, skeptic, stoic. And there's one more, um, the unsatisfied consciousness. Yeah, okay, okay. I remember right now, yeah. Skeptic, stoic, and unsatisfied consciousness. You have the, the stoic who basically withdraws himself from the world. The world, they're all in their mind. Uh, the world could be complete shit and it doesn't matter to the stoic because the stoic is- Attachment, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're remaining fully um, composite in their thoughts, their feelings. So whatever that happens in the world, they're all good. And Hegel's point is that, well, the Stoic cannot accomplish anything in the world if they've fully withdrawn from the world into spirit. Um, the, the, the skeptic, Hegel says, is self-contradictory. The skeptic looks at their hands and goes, these don't exist, and then goes and use the, uses their hands, right? Yeah. So <laughs> that's that's Hegel's point. It, 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 he very quickly calls the skeptic self-contradictory. He doesn't spend much time on skepticism. The, the, the skeptic sees things and then goes, I'm not seeing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like looks at their hands and, oh, I'm, 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 this isn't there. And then uses their hands for crafting something. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's, and then the unsatisfied consciousness is quite interesting because Hegel, Hegel says that this is the archetype of a person who's longing for a beyond, for a divine, for a sort of God-like figure but does not know what that is. So they just have this indeterminacy that they're longing for. And he says, this, these three um, archetypes of spirit composed of the Roman peoples, the Roman people in the Roman empire, they were largely one of these three types of people, skeptics, stoic, or unsatisfied, unhappy consciousness, unsatisfied consciousness. So the yeah. point of making these two, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to go in more in, into his different levels of uh, spirit. We've gone through two, but the point is that when you, when absolute knowing is reached at the end, you are now able to look back on each part, you know, on each shape of spirit and see the whole of spirit in it. That means you can relate that Roman shape of spirit to Greek spirit. You can relate that Roman shape of spirit to later Germanic spirit, right? So all of these shapes of spirit only once you've reached absolute knowing can be related to each other. You see the whole of spirit in each spirit. Um, the way that I like to phrase this is given metaphor of an art gallery. You're walking through an art gallery 
And when you're the person walking through the art, gal art gallery is that who has absolute knowledge. And the person walking through the art gallery looks at all these paintings and these paintings are shapes of spirit. And they walk through the art gallery, looks at the look at the shapes of spirit, and then they look at another one. They can compare the two. They can see how this shape of spirit has relation to this shape of spirit. And it is only through reaching absolute knowing that one is able to do this. Because for the person who is in the Roman Empire, for the person who is in the Greek Empire, they don't have this ability. They can't look towards the future. They can't look towards the, the past completely and go, oh, um, I, I, uh, I can relate my, my suffering, my archetype to the Greek archetype, right? It's only for that who has reached absolute knowing, um, which is, again, I would say is the emanating um, divine unity of the universe. Uh, yeah, and so this was, I, I can see how you said this is the most mystical reading of Hegel. Yes. Right? Because, um, yes. Correct me if I'm wrong, people like Zizek, uh, read this from a materialist perspective. Yeah, I can. Yeah, um, I can give Zizek's reading if you would like me to. I was just going to ask perhaps because I've got a, I've got a lot more questions on Hegel, but maybe uh, it's because mm -hmm. I mean, in many ways, I to be totally uh, uh, honest with you, I too was introduced to Hegel as, as a serious thinker via via yeah. Zizek. Before mm -hmm. that, the only book I read on Hegel was uh, Peter Singer's book. Uh, that oh, I've never read it. And I don't want to. Uh, uh, it's, it's okay. I mean, it's okay to okay. just like, I guess it's okay to get the terms, get, get to mm -hmm. attune oneself with the, to familiarize yourself with the terms. But sure. I don't think, I mean, there are certainly much better books on Hegel than, than that book. Uh, but sorry to interrupt you, uh, Hunter, as I was saying. So yeah, what's, uh, so you, you, you described the mystical reading of Hegel, which I'm still uh, trying to grok myself. It's a bit of a hard thing to uh, is, understand. Yeah. But what's Zizek's materialist reading of Hegel? So what Zizek does is he takes out any of these notions of Aristotle's prime mover. He doesn't mention it. Any of his talk about absolute knowing, he tries to repress it. He's a psychoanalytic term. He tries to repress the truth that Hegel's talking about Aristotle's prime mover. And this is because Zizek does not like Aristotle much. Um, he doesn't like much of the Greeks at all, really, in all honesty. He doesn't like using them. He's not like Heidegger, who thinks that there's this truth in Plato, this truth in Aristotle. Zizek is like, no, Hegel is all that we need. Kant too, a little, but mostly just Hegel. And he tries to repress this truth of Aristotle and Hegel. Um, and so what he says is that absolute knowing is just the, uh, is absolute knowing for Zizek is more historical um, in the sense that it's the recognition. Kind of, yeah. yeah, exactly. It, it, it's the recognition that I cannot see beyond the immediate now. And yeah, and I cannot see beyond the immediate now. And I cannot see myself um, in in later later times, absolutely. In the sense that I cannot see what will become of this world. I cannot see what will become of me in later times. So that's his view of absolute knowing. It's a far more, again, materialist, I would say reductionist view that uh, takes out a lot of what Hegel means. Um, and I would say most importantly, or most unfortunately, it omits um, the reading of Friedrich Schiller's poem on friendship, that if anyone who has heard of phenomenology of spirit and absolute knowing, they will know that Hegel quotes Friedrich Schiller's poem on friendship, but, but either purposefully or not purposefully, that's a scholarly debate, changes the words 
to reflect his own philosophy. Um, I love it. And GJ, I love that. <laughs> he does well, do that. <laughs> yeah, I can I can explain why it's a debate. Um, because yeah, Hegel, please. all of Hegel's quotes that he gives throughout his books are all memorized. So these are his memorized quotes from what he read at a different time. So this is because we don't, so this is why we don't know if he purposely meant to change it. Maybe he really did believe that this is what Schiller said. Maybe he didn't think that. Maybe he wanted to change Schiller to put his own message in. We don't know. Um, I personally think it's cooler if he, if he did. I think that's cooler. I think it's cool to change someone's quotes and then, uh, but. I um, in fact, I think Heidegger makes this point that. Heidegger does this a lot, re a lot. Reread you know people before them but then change them <laughs> so in retrospect they, they change too that's really interesting heidegger does this a lot yeah anyone who's read heidegger knows his very yeah. weird renditions of nietzsche's like quotes and totally plato's quotes and he'll change words of like truth and plato to his to his term of like unveiling yeah. uh just to reiterate his philosophy so yeah it's appropriate yeah 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 uh, uh uh oh thank you for clarifying that i always because the more I'm getting into Hegel, I'm, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I'm trying to reconcile, but I'm trying to understand, oh, there is like a mystical reading, a, of course, certainly a Marxist reading, a materialist reading. And, and I, I never, I, I, I guess I still am kind of struggling to delineate it, but perhaps the, the, the struggle itself is what makes uh, it, it worth it to sound a bit Camus about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, in, in any case, so, okay, this is great because now I think I can, I can move on to the next question. We're not going to get to Lacan yet, but that that's sure. that's coming soon. Uh, so I, I thought it was kind of important because again, you know, like as as you, you you certainly would know this as being a person who reads Hegel quite a lot, certainly more than me. A lot of people have like a love hate relationship with Hegel. Some people just purely hate him, thinks he's you know metaphysical madness. Uh, he's caricatured. So I'll again ask uh, the question in two parts. Firstly, at a very, very high level, just at a very high level, what was Hegel trying to explore in his, some would say, magnum opus, Phenomenology of Spirit? Um, and then, what what do you think, in your opinion, uh, most people get wrong about Hegel? Mm. Okay. Yeah, so Phenomenology of Spirit, I would say he was trying to retrace humans' um, realization of their potential and their realization of their freedom. Um, this is why absolute knowing can be read very mystically, but it can also be read in a far more pragmatic sense or practical sense. This is what a lot of Anglo Hegelians do. People like Robert Pippin, uh, Robert Brandon, um, John McDowell. These are known as the Pittsburgh School Hegelians, um, and they, consider themselves an analytic philosophy. So they call themselves analytic Hegelian, something like that. And it's a very recent rise because of course, Bertrand Russell, Karl Popper hated Hegel. But since the eighties or so, um, there's been a rise of analytic Hegelians. Now I myself have not chosen to read them. So I can't really say much about their thoughts. Um, but what I know is that they read, a, read Kant far more into Hegel than I think a lot of uh, Hegelians that are on the continental side do, because what they see of Hegel is the sort of prag pragmatist and um, yeah, this like American pragmatist message um, from like C.S. Pierce and um, William James, people like that. They see Hegel as, and they try and fit Hegel in this view, this like very 
Piercean pragmatist type of view um, where Hegel's not doing all this mystical stuff. He's not talking about the divine unity of the universe. What he's just saying is that basically that people just like they, they, they develop freedom. And then once they develop freedom, they can look back and they can think about the past and they can look to what goes forward, hopefully, and think about what's going to come next. And it's a very reductionist view of Hegel, but they do it on purpose because they don't want to get into metaphysics, um, especially not mystic metaphysics, right? Yeah, as good old American pragmatists. <laughs> they exactly. want to focus on what's pragmatic. Yep. Yeah. And I don't hate the pragmatist. I haven't read any C.S. Pierce, though. I've read a little William James and I mean, he is a mystic himself, but his his the part of pragmatism that he influenced was not mystic at all. Of course, he himself was a mystic, but that wasn't mystic. Yeah, in fact, um, I remember reading an essay by William James a while back. Yeah. I've totally forgotten what it was called. He goes quite deeply into mysticism and psychedelics, even and and kind of yeah, transcendental and whatnot yeah there's a, there's a funny quote um regarding william james and hegel what he says is that uh i advise you all i'm trying to paraphrase it but keep some of his language i advise you all to try and read hegel the way hegel should be read that is hegel should be read on nitrous oxide only then can one see the true speculative truth oh, i love hegel. it yeah. yeah yeah and he did read hegel on nitrous oxide multiple times so uh yeah so uh, just to re, re uh, I guess, go back to the previous point, uh, you're saying you, you, you were talking about phenomenology of spirit and you were yeah. saying there is this kind of American pragmatic reading of it, but then uh, certainly there's also mystical reading of it. But to put it again, to really, really dumb it down, and I, I forgive me if this is like a like an insult to Hegel, it's that he's he's trying to tackle the question of freedom. yeah okay yeah i think, <laughs> I, I, think, I, think I said so. really really dumb it down man so yeah 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 no i think i think yeah i think freedom yeah freedom and freedom sure yeah but then of course we, we gotta understand here right because see like us as westerners we think of freedom in a very like in the sense of negative freedom we think politically of no, freedom we, of speech he is a lot more uh, deeper than that because he understands that he talks about self-consciousness and how you know we can't free we can't be free by ourselves. I certainly remember what we need to have structures that allow human freedom. So it's yes. definitely a lot more deeper than just this kind yeah. of libertarian freedom that we think of. Yeah, one of the main readings of Hegel on in the left-wing tradition and the and the continental tradition is yeah, by tradition too. Yeah. yeah is by Alexandre Kojev. Uh, Kojev was a Russian um, writer, and he is extremely known for influencing the reading of Hegel by people like Lacan, Deleuze, Althusser, Sartre, Foucault, name any French person in the 20th century. They probably attended Kojev's seminars on Hegel. And Kojev still is the focal hold of French Hegelianism today. Um, but so what Kojiev's whole thing is, because he's a Marxist, he wants to emphasize that Hegel is in, in Hegel's so-called master-slave dialectic, which is quite famous. I can explain it. Um, basically, there is a archetype of a slave, someone who works for someone, and there is an archetype of a master, someone who does not work for someone, but employs the slave or forces the slave to work. And the slave relies on the master for food, 
And the master doesn't think he relies on anyone because he's like, oh, I don't need you, slave. I could do my own thing if you weren't here. The slave's like, oh, I actually need this guy. He's important for me. Um, and Hegel's master-slave dialectic and the phenomenology of spirit basically goes that the master and slave must come to recognize each other as on the same playing field. There cannot be a master, there cannot be a slave for there to be ethics in society. To have um, uh, ethics, to have a reason, you have to have this sort of clear playing field. Um, and he says that you can only do this, the, the, the term he uses is like an encounter with death. This is to mean that you can only do this through suffering. Suffering will be required to come to this playing field. And this very important for Marxist readings because suffering, they take that as a revolution. Revolution, violence must be required. An encounter with death must be required to come to this level playing field that they would read as post-capitalism communism. Um, and and uh, that's sort of Kojev's reading of the phenomenology of spirit and absolute knowing he discounts it completely. He doesn't talk about it. He mentions it and he's like, Hegel's crazy. I don't even want to talk about it. He basically stops at this. He goes, this is Hegel's main message that we understand better with Marx, that only through suffering will we be able to recognize each other. And that is a major reading of Hegel, which tries to emphasize an ethical dimension to Hegel's thought, the ethical dimension of recognition, social recognition. I have to recognize you as being a person with autonomy and uh, a relative sense of uh, independence. You have to recognize me as the same. If this is a one-way recognition, then there will not be a clear playing field in society. Therefore, there will not be a happy, good, whatever you want to say, society. So that's sort of the practical vision of phenomenology of spirit that I think that a lot of people try and pull out of, whether you're in the Marxist tradition or if you're in the more social democratic Anglo-Hegelian tradition, which is, again, sort of the um, Robert Pippin, Robert Cramden. And these people, they're, again, they read cotton to it. So their thing is not just that um, you have to recognize the other person, but you must recognize the other person as having their own will. Kant's very big about will. So it's, uh, they, they, they bring that into the picture as well. Um, so that's how I, I would answer that. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming you come from that tradition, isn't it? From like the leftist reading of Hegel. Yeah. 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 Um, um, oh, you did say, however, though, that you, you still do read it to the mystical uh, way of reading Hegel too, yeah. right? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not a metaphysical materialist now. Yeah, understood. Understood. Uh, okay, next question is, what do you think most people, and, and when I mean most people, I don't know what I, maybe Badazma, the, the proverbial day. What, sure. what do you think most people get wrong about Hegel? Okay, um, that Hegel is not a like a like an agent of the Prussian state. I think a lot of people hear of Hegel yes. and they think he's like a Prussian state agent. And because there are times where Hegel is quite praiseworthy of the Prussian state. I mean, he calls Napoleon the Weltgeist, uh, 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 world spirit. Basically, Napoleon is the man who's going to bring us into the new age of spirit, right? Which I would argue that Napoleon did kind of do that. He kind of did change a lot of your kind of bring this new age of spirit yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and so, and yeah, there's actually a funny, there's a funny um, uh, image you can find online. It's like a meme where Napoleon's writing down in front of Hegel's house and Hegel's outside and he's like cheering. Napoleon's like, like taking over his town. Yeah, basically. yeah. Oh, certainly. I mean, in fact, he's probably right because I was, I read this essay 
quite recently, actually. It was about how, you know, a lot of the modern way that cities are planned, the modern city planning, architecture, all of that was heavily influenced and inspired by what Napoleon did in, in his reign where he did, you know, modern city planning and whatnot and kind of, yeah. anyway, I'll, I'll stop there, but I, I get your point. Yeah. No, yeah, 100%. I actually um, did a book on that. Hold on. What's uh, this book? David Harvey's Rebels. Oh, David, there we go. David Harvey's Rebel? Is it called Rebel? Rebel, Rebel Cities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's uh, blocking out. There we go. Uh, now, I'll, I'll, oh, just, yeah. I'll, I'll put a photo on the when the podcast is published, when I'm editing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, David Harvey's Rebel Cities. The first couple of um, chapters are all about the uh, influence of French uh, architectural thought and American architectural thought, specifically the 60s in America, based a lot of their understanding of how to build cities and how the urban plan off well, of French architects and the Second Republic of France. So, so yeah, uh, we were talking about what people get wrong about Hegel. You said that the caricature or the kind of the insult is he was an agent of the Prussian state. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and yeah. Please keep going. Yeah, what what else? Yeah. Um, I would say that people think he's an agent of the Prussian state because the Napoleon comment, he also kind of seemed to want a sort of government like the Prussian state, but, and also his comments about the end of history. Um, when Hegel, this is another very misinterpreted part of Hegel, is when Hegel says the end of history, people think that Hegel was dumb enough to think that the world would just end after he was dead. No, Hegel doesn't mean that. No, he... Hegel didn't think the world would end after he was dead. He didn't think everyone would just disappear and he was all the, the most important person and then everyone would kill themselves after it. Yeah, can, Hegel. can I just in, in, interrupt a little bit? Sorry. I, he also, I think he never said that this kind of, that he has reached this absolute knowing, right? He know, did, he, did he make that statement that it's like no, his, no. his mind has reached absolute knowing? I don't think he said no, that. No. Some people do no. think that he said that. Yeah, um, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he said the end of history. And what Hegel basically means by the end of history is that there was going to be a new shape of spirit that would take over very soon. And because Hegel saw the, the the beginnings of capitalism, the, the um, nice post-industrial revolution yeah. stuff going on. And he said there something's going to change. There's going to be dramatic changes. History as we know it is going to change. It is the end of history as we know it. And he was right. And I think a lot of people, he is. He was 100% right. Yes. I mean, we, yeah. We saw so many different changes with with um, capitalism being more innovative in the Gilded Age in America, of course. Um, and I think Hegel foresaw this. In fact, there's a quote from his lectures of philosophy of history where he says that after Germany, spirit will go to a newfound land, maybe Russia, maybe the newfound in America. Um, so Hegel even said that maybe America is going to be the next place of spirit, the next place for human innovation and development. Um, which I think the Gilded Age would kind of reflect that uh, Hegel's, you know, um, assumption or prediction. But that's kind of why people think that Hegel is an agent of the Prussian state, is because he says things like it's the end of history. Um, he praises the Prussian state. But what's very important is that Hegel had a lot of critiques of the Prussian state as well. Not so much in his actual books that he published, like uh, Philosophy of Right, but more so in the letters that he wrote to his friends and to his colleagues, where he would talk about like, oh, I don't like this, this new policy they're doing. I want them to emphasize uh, education more. I want them to emphasize um, uh, cu um, cutting down on various um, influences and in civil society, which would be the market and the family structure. 
well, I want them to stay out of this. Um, so Hegel definitely was not an agent of the Prussian state as some people read him. He was a monarchist. If anything, I would probably say he's some sort of like constitutional monarchist. Um, he wanted a legislator. He wanted people to vote. He also wanted a monarch who, as the famous saying goes, dots the I's and crosses the T's. The monarch himself is not supposed to have any actual ideas. Yeah, yes. sorry, I'm going off. No, this is good. No, no, no. You, you should you should keep going on this because Zizek makes yeah. this point. And, you know, in a typical Zizekian manner, he says the monarch should be some kind of idiot who doesn't know what the hell's going on, just like science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I, I, but keep going, though. This is an important point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the point Zizek makes. And I like this point a lot. And I, I probably agree. Um, is that the monarch should just be like this, just like buffoon. He didn't really do anything. Oh, he's sort of just like the stand-in um, for the uh, aid of his advisors. And his advisors are the ones who have all the ideas. They're the ones who are technocrats or whatever you want to say. They are the ones who have the ideas and they just tell the monarch what to do. And he just uh, signs the paper. Um, and I think that's Hegel's reading. And this is why Hegel isn't like some crazy totalitarian. Like Karl Popper said that he was like totalitarian and he- yeah. He was an enemy of the open society, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I don't think he was at all. I don't think Hegel, I don't think Hegel was right wing in the sense that we would use it today. I think Hegel was probably about center left. I think he would probably identify with the Labour Party in Britain. He would just want them to be a little bit more, you know, pro monarchy. But in terms of their policies, I think that Hegel was probably like center left. Um, yeah, yeah. And not, well, well I, I would say he perhaps from. And I haven't read a lot of Hegel, to be honest. I've only really tried to read Phenomenology of Spirit, yeah. but I've read a lot on him. I, I can't think of any thinker who had a better understanding of how freedom exists, at, at, like, even at a purely political level, than Hegel. Because obviously he isn't talking about this, yeah, I would say naive libertarian freedom, where if you just let people be in like a free, the free market, people are going to be free. But that certainly isn't what's happening right now. I would say in many ways, you know, as, as Zizek says really really uh brilliantly uh we are we are in a, we are in a position or we're we are in a situation where we can't even articulate our unfreedom we are so unfree we can't even we don't we can't even say how unfree we are yes. and and i think uh he gets that a little bit by hegel too because obviously he's an hegelian um interesting okay uh i want to move to lacan next that by the way hunter that was brilliant i thank you so much firstly for like I'm currently like having all these like mental, my mind is like so stimulated. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was brilliant. And I'm taking on a few notes as you, as you speak, just to like do my own uh, reading afterwards. Uh, but this is the last question on Hegel, because like, I don't even know if Hegel specifically said that this is a really important part of his philosophy, but certainly a lot of, a lot of Hegel scholars and a lot of people have focused on his dialectics. Now I haven't, I haven't read the science of logic. Um, and I, but I do know his dialectical method is really important, especially uh, the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in Hegel's theology and reading the crucifixion via his yes, dialectical yes. method is, I think that's fascinating. Um, okay. So the question would be, um, again, I keep asking two questions bundled in, in one. It's only just yeah. for the sake of brevity and, and time and all that. Um, so yeah, what's your understanding of the Hegelian dialectic? And then how does Hegel understand negation? Okay, so Hegelian dialectic. The issue is that Hegel doesn't have one dialectic. Um, he presents his dialectic in three different ways, I would, uh, I would say. Uh, the first is in phenomenology of spirit. The second is in encyclopedia. The third is in science of logic. 
Um, so in phenomenology of spirit, his dialectic is, it's far more concrete in the sense that it isn't very abstract. Um, I'll kind of try and explain it. So we're, we're looking at this cup. Um, and can you see my cup? I mean, I know that's a cup there. It's fine. It's fine. It's blue. Okay. I think people can't imagine what a cup looks like. So yeah, there we go. Oh, perfect. There you so, go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're looking at my cup here, and what my my cup seems to be at first glance to the onlooker, it seems to just have like a full identity, right? Like there doesn't seem to be anything else that requires this cup to be a cup, right? Like call it a cup. Cup's a cup. Well. What Hegel would say is that this is, we're in natural consciousness right, right now because we haven't understood the logical uh, relation of things in the world to other things. So look at this thing and we go, well, all right, maybe this cup may, may not just be a cup because how can the shape and the color and all of the components stay together? What if, like, like, like what's keeping them together basically? Well, Hegel would say, like, like, like as an identity, this is not like a physical like glue or whatever, but like as an identity, how, what is keeping the shape, the color and um, all the components of the cup together? Well, Hegel would say, you, you kind of have, uh, the, the first choice you may, you may say is that, well, the cup as an image is just like this medium to us, which only exists to us, but is not actually a thing. It's kind of hard to, he calls this an also, at least in the translation, where it's just like an also. It's just like this medium that just holds all these properties, all these opposing properties, and it just holds them. But then Hegel goes, wouldn't that medium itself be a property? And therefore, what would hold it? So you have to now say, okay, what gives this cup its cupness? Well, in the identity of the cup, Hegel would say, is the not cup. There is what is not the cup in the identity of the cup. Yeah. And this is what is around the cup and what is everything in the world that is not the cup. And this brings uh, me into what Hegel would say is the true infinite, because everything that is not the cup consists in the relation of this cup. Therefore, the infinite relation of this cup self-differentiates itself because everything in there is different from everything else yet it remains in a unity through this difference. And this is the infinite relation of all things in the world, according to Hegel. Yep. So the negation has some kind of positive content. It, it's it's understood. And this is, of course, Zizek's, I mean, I, I know you used a cup. That that probably was actually a, a much easier, uh, way, way, like a much more easy example to... to, to yeah, in my, um, in my book, I do a tree. A tree. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't got gotten into the book yet, but I certainly want to, mate. Um, of course, this is where you know Zizek talks about the uh, coffee without cream, uh, yeah. coffee without milk. The idea is that the negation itself has some kind of positive content to it, right? Mm -hmm. mm -mm -mm. Okay, so that is. But this was sorry. Did you say this is his understanding in the uh, phenomenology of spirit or the science of logic? This is not science of logic. This is okay. just phenomenology. Okay. In phenomenology, yeah, because of course, a lot of people when they speak of Hegelian dialectics speak about the uh theses, antitheses, and then the synthesis, right? And, yeah. and I know a lot of Hegel scholars make that exact face, they're like, nah, don't know, yeah. that's not what Hegel is. So, yeah, yeah. maybe you know, maybe we could connect this to the other question that I asked before, which is why do most people get wrong about Hegel? Uh, uh, what why do a lot of people read Hegel as, as in, in this way of, I would say, a very like reductionist way of 
thesis antithesis mm-hmm. and then there's like this whole, whole holistic kind of like a union uh synthesis uh yeah like um yeah, yeah sorry okay. now as well yeah. i, I really asked that question properly why do you think a lot of people read hegel in that way and why is that wrong i think a lot of people read hegel in this way because this is what the earliest readers of hegel believed in germany um because uh-huh. they read fichte and fichte is the one who actually came actually up with it. yeah 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 fichte's I don't want to go too much into this. This, this. this would be a lot of history of Fichte's theory of the self, but basically Fichte thought that the self, what, what we call ourselves, is simply just an act, a positing, and it posits what is the self and what is not the self in the positing, because you can't just posit the self. You have to posit what is not the self for that self to you know differentiate from something. So in this act of positing, this is the synthesis, and what is not the self is the a- antithesis, and then this, and then I guess like the, the, uh, all the positive self would be the synthesis. So the positing antithesis, po- uh, non-self antithesis, and then the positive, once it's positive would be the synthesis. And Fichte's point is um, that we have to have a sense of a synthetic unity of the self, not an analytic unity. This is against Kant. Kant believed we had an analytic unity of apperception. Uh, well, mm, now, can't believe we did have an analytic unity where he would say that like the I equals the I and that is the self and all that needs to be said. But what Fichte understands is that all this is just a formal principle because if the I just equals itself, it doesn't allow for any differentiation. So all we have is just yeah, the existence exactly. of the self. We don't have anything else. Yeah. Fichte makes a point you have to posit the not self as well. But yeah, so yeah. I'll go back to Hegel now. Um, so Hegel's point would be that there isn't just an antithesis and an antithesis and a synthesis, but these. Sorry, I think. But just clarify, you've been saying antithesis, antithesis. So you, you mean thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you said right. antithesis twice, and I, I, it might confuse that. But I, I get yeah, what yeah. you and I know you misspoke there. But so thesis yeah, and yeah. synthesis, right? Yeah, keep going. Just to clarify for yeah. the for the listener. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's my bad. Um. So yeah. So Hegel's point would be that. There's not just a thesis, antithesis, and a synthesis, but that this thesis and antithesis has a negation of negation, and that makes a sublation or a offibong. Which, yeah. yeah, which means to rise above the two, which means to rise above the two last terms. Um, so you have this antithesis, the synthesis, this antithesis and thesis, but when they come together, what they don't, they don't really just come together. What they do is they kind of negate themselves in this coming together and this affirms a higher unity so it's not just like a pure synthesis where like you get um let's say you're painting right and you got red and you got purple you mix them together right that's a synthesis the antithesis would be the purple so the thesis would be red right so hegel's point would be that no what you're doing is you're creating a higher term you're not just synthesizing you are negating both and therefore positing a sublation or also bong of what is now there understood and again going, going back to that question when I, when I asked you about the dialectics like it's like what i loved about hegel really was he's the first philosopher uh via zizek of course who made me understand that negation is an important concept yes. it's not just something that's uh, like an antithesis or like an antithetical thing to what's 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 positive or what's 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 affirmed. That negation yeah. itself has a has a uh, 
what's the word ontological reality or ont- ontological being to its existence and and you know that that if you think about it how how deep that idea is like it my gosh it's it politics sociology every every way of how how we exist and perceive the world certainly ideology or all these mm-hmm. ways of how we exist in the world speaking purely existentially uh that that changes how we live if we understand that negation has this like positive uh positive content to it right and unfortunately this is not hegel's idea i wish it was it's such a great idea but oh. it actually goes all the way back to plato in the sophist no plato I, makes this i thought it was a hegelian idea sorry to interrupt you but keep going yeah 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 so plato and the sophist makes this point of determinate negation where i don't remember the exact context but basically socrates negates a property of something and hegel goes you've affirmed something in return um and then the next major person to jump on this was Spinoza. Spinoza Hegel yeah. actually mentioned Spinoza in his discussion of determinate negation and science of logic and encyclopedia. Um, so he he himself was not trying to claim that he came up with it. I would say that he built on it because he put it into his dialectic, which Spinoza and Plato did not really have. But the idea of negating something to then affirm something as an always already occurrence uh, is actually a, Pl- a Platonist idea. So. Thank you for that, Hunter. I had no idea. I, I in fact really thought. Well, I, I, I really thought that Hegel was the put. It was like an orig, orig, original concept that he created, but mm-hmm. he's building on from someone like, of course, from Spinoza. 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 Yeah, yeah. As, as all great thinkers do, you know. I think yeah. Jack, in my opinion, would be remembered as being perhaps one of the most important philosophers of our time and perhaps even history, but not for his original concepts that he conjured up ex nihilo in, in some sense but actually for building on hegel and and making yeah. showing the importance of hegel um yeah okay yeah yeah sorry you were gonna say something go ahead no oh, yeah i was gonna say definitely yeah uh okay so now let's get to lacon um how are we doing with time i think i think we're still all right because i do want to discuss lacon for, for sure but also perhaps one of your best videos that you made which was your uh video on christian atheism so yep. uh but let's first get through Lacan. So uh since we were talking about Hegel, uh why do you think it's important to uh read Hegel via Lacan or the Lacanian lens? So read Hegel with Lacan or read Lacan with Hegel? Which one? Uh I, I would probably say I would probably say use Lacan's ideas to read Hegel. Like why do you think it's important to read Hegel the way Zizek does? Uh yeah. Uh, through Lacanian ideas? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Lacan's ideas of the symbolic and the real and the imaginary are very important because Hegel, as much as some people, I've seen some Hegelians say this, Hegel did not have a theory of the unconscious. He did not have an idea of it. There is no idea of the unconscious in Hegel. Um, there's there's various uh, like statements he makes which seems that he has maybe an idea of how language works and this lacanian uh signifying structure where hegel's like we posit the eye and this eye is the universal eye but it's also a differentiating eye because it's different than every other eye when you say i i say i talking about different eyes but it's the same term meant to be a universal but also a differentiation as well um and lacan would agree with something like that but i think we largely read hegel uh, we largely read Lacan through Hegel because Hegel does not have a theory of the unconscious. And I think any successful philosophy after Freud 
has to recognize the unconscious. I agree. Yeah, I mean, psychoanalysis revolutionized philosophy, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's extremely important. Yeah, yeah. All right, so maybe we'll get to some Lacanian concepts here. Um, yeah. Look, I'm not expecting you to give a full-on course on Lacan in this podcast because that's yeah. virtually impossible, especially given the time constraints. Uh, but I'll just ask a few questions that I had had in mind. Um, hmm. I've in fact got a lot of questions to ask. <laughs> so maybe with some some basics out of the way. But so, uh, what, what does Lacan mean by objet petit a, the object cause of desire? Yeah. So objet petit a for Lacan is basically your lack that continues the movement of desire. The if you want to imagine it as like an object, it's an object of negativized lack that continues the movement of desire. So for every desire. Um, you, you, you never fulfill desire, and that unfulfillment of desire is the object petit a that's continuing it. That makes sense. And this is why, would, would this be why uh, both Jacques and Lacan aren't Buddhists? Like they have this uh, yes. criticism of Buddhism. Could you probably ex yeah, and expound on why they aren't these Western Buddhists? Yeah. It's basically that Lacan basically, well, Lacan was more keen to Buddhism than Zizek. Uh, Lacan, in fact, visited um, Buddhist temples a couple of times. He visited Japan, actually, and did a lot of did engaged in Buddhist discussions there. Um, but visited Japan twice, I believe. But um, the reason why they don't like Buddhism much is because Buddhism says that you can relinquish your desire. But Zizek's point and Lacan's point is that when you relinquish your desire, you're desiring for the desire of relinquishing exactly. desire. Yeah, yeah. So you've moved back into the objet petit a through the inversion of through the inversion of desire. Because now yet, you're desiring for the relinquishing yeah. of desire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the uh, and this is where the line by uh, uh, Galileo and yet it moves comes in right. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Yes, I quote that actually in my um in yeah, my but... uh, uh essay on um on uh lacan and feminism yeah. and gender theory and feminism yep yeah. I, I i didn't get to that the moment but anyway yeah. that's yeah because really important i think that's that's an important point there because i've realized i mean in some sense even nietzsche in his genealogy of morals uh makes this critique of uh kind of buddhism and aestheticism right but but he comes at it more from this like anti-life, self-hating perspective as N nietzsche does he, he but but i i, I find that extremely interesting that because the idea idea in buddhism is everything is kind of like a cosmic phenomena you gotta you gotta relinquish desire and but then the the <laughs> paradoxically as it as it happens that itself becomes a desire to relinquish desire yep when i read that it just it blew my mind because i did try for a while all these kind of like to to delve into buddhism and i, I realized there was something that always kept my it was like a uh, there was like a deep antagonism in me, uh, yeah. which I couldn't deal with, despite this mm -hmm. kind of I'm going to meditate or like to not desire things. Yeah. And then I realized, oh wait a minute, this antagonism is because I'm a split subject. I I I it's it's a part of my being. I can't get rid of that antagonism in some sense. Um, that's that's fascinating. Um, so just again on some looking in concepts. So we have the real, and then we have reality, or and then we have the sim or the symbolic reality. So maybe uh, in your view, just to, again, 
Lacan being notoriously difficult and rather... I actually have a really easy way to explain this. Uh, I have a couple of favorite examples I jump to. Please jump, jump into it, mate. Yeah. yeah. So one of my favorite examples to explain the real is basically, imagine you're asking someone their day, right? When you ask someone your day, you expect two answers. You expect good and you, or you expect I'm doing fine, right? You don't expect anything else. If someone says anything else, you get kind of weird. You're like, what? Take it easy, like, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take, take it, hold yeah. on. I just said, how's your day? Why are you I talking you to about your, me. why are you telling me that you got divorced uh, last month? I don't, I, don't, I don't need to know this. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. It, it, the point is that we don't want to actually know how your day is. That's the real in this question. If you tell me how your day actually is, that's how we identify. That's what Lacan would say the real is. For instance, I, I give this example in um, a, my book, uh, the same thing where basically I'm like, okay, someone says, how's your day? And if you start going, well, well, my cat died yesterday and my wife left me last week. They're like, whoa. It's too traumatic. Man. That really is too traumatic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't tell me about your day. What? Yeah. I didn't ask you how your day Well, I did ask you how your day was, but I didn't really mean. So that's kind of the point is that that's the real Lacan. It's that unspoken part of language, that traumatic element, which when which which can't really be planned. You can't really plan to anticipate the real. It just kind of surprises you. It just happens. Um, that's a good example. Another one is when, let's say you're going in for, let's say you're in a business meeting. And someone comes up to you, they shake your hand very politely. And instead of sh shakes sticking out your hand, you open your arms for a hug. They're petrified. What are you doing? What? You, you've gone against the you've gone against the symbolic order this yeah. is symbolic reality you shake your hand boom that's it you've completely gone against that you've opened your arms you've quite literally opened yourself to the real um and this is this is i think the best these two examples are really good for understanding the real Lacan and how it Im impacts us every day is this also why uh in, in an interview jack has asked what is the real and then he goes to put it very simply and very kind of abstractly, the real is that which cannot be symbolized. Yes, yes, because you can't bring this this traumatic element of explaining how your day is and you actually explain how your day is to someone. If this was symbolized across society, things would never get done. People would just sit there talking about how bad their day is because yeah, yeah. you know, most it, people don't, don't have a great yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it, it, it people like talking about trauma, which we can get to the death drive as well. Yeah. <laughs> That, that goes oh, yeah, I, I have a question on Jewish zones, so we'll we'll get to that for sure. Yeah. Uh, but then just just for, again for the layperson, you know, just to what what is symbolic reality for Lacan? I mean, I have a very uh, peripheral understanding of it or elementary understanding of it, but in your view, what is symbolic reality for Lacan? Yeah, symbolic reality is basically just that everydayness that when you ask someone how their day is, you expect that good in you. When you go in for a handshake, you expect them to give you a handshake. This is the, the symbolic reality that what Lacan would say the big other has given us the desire to have. When, when, when we go in for a handshake, the big other, we're like sort of in the in a metaphorical sense, we're motioning towards this, this colloquial role, this colloquial big other that gives us this, this yes, that yes, you go in for the handshake. Yes, you do not go in for a hug when someone goes in for a handshake or you don't kiss the so, person that would be too exactly. okay that would be the real yeah, you, know? you can yeah. make it as more you can make it as crazy as you want you could yeah. say someone pulls a knife when you go for a handshake yeah yeah, yeah. so just yeah. it's this it's this break symbolic reality is our everydayness to use a heideggerian term it's the everydayness of of the world right? in fact we can't exist without it right like for us to exist in the world we need a symbolic reality so 
And this the, this gets into psychosis and the reason, but that's also, maybe yeah, a little yeah. bit out. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 also, I mean, this is needless to state, but it's not just something that we can articulate and formalize. It is mm-hmm. again, it's in our everydayness. It's in our also, in fact, to use a, a term by uh, Hubert Dreyfus, it's like our background practices. You know, I think yes. he wrote a book on background practices, a great book. I read it a while back. Um, it's it's also like, for instance, uh, another example he uses is how uh, the distance you stand in, a, in, a, in an elevator, the distance you stand from each other, it differs from different cultures. Like yes. some cultures, like some cultures are totally fine with being really close to each other, maybe like South American cultures, but then more like in our Western culture or perhaps in Asian cultures, people have distance. They, they, yes. that's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, Okay. This if, is if you, if you break that distance, you've broken symbolic reality. Like right? reality, an elevator. People don't even know how to react. Example. Like you're shocked, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't thought of this example. That's really good. Uh, let's say you're going up a a building and you're in an elevator with one other person, and basically in America, you're on one side, they're on one side. You don't even make eye contact sometimes. <laughs> you don't make eye contact. Yeah. Now, imagine if you turn around, start walking towards them, and staring at them. Yeah. The real. That's the real. Yeah. <laughs> that's the traumatic. Yeah. 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 That, that that's a really good example. I haven't thought of that. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so a, a very selfish question, Hunter, and this is something I've struggled with a lot in the past month. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to write an essay on this particular topic, uh, and yeah. I think in our show notes, I didn't even highlight it and said I, I would like to discuss this because you brought up the big other. For a again, for a neophyte like myself, could you please describe the difference between the super ego, so a psychoanalytical concept, and then the Lacanian, Jekyll, Big Other? Yeah. So this this was a question. This is the only question that I actually thought about before I hopped on here. I looked, I, I skimmed them over, but this question got me because I was like, I think I have an answer. And so I'm going to, I didn't write it down or anything, but I'm, I, I think I, I think I know the answer. And I think it's, the, the big difference is that the Big Other is sort of a what Freud didn't get. In fact, it is, you can say it is the real of the superego, that which was not symbolized by the superego. And more specifically, the big other for Lacan is the locus of language. It is the locus of morality, the locus of cultural norms. For Freud, the big, uh, for Freud, the superego was only, basically, you can't, explicitly, Freud, he never made it explicit that the superego was anything more than just prohibitions. That's it. That's all the superego was for him, was prohibitions and cultural norms. Language was not a part of the superego. There was no notion of language in the superego. That's probably the biggest difference, is that Lacan and Lacanian psychoanalysis places a great deal on language. Now, this is not to say Freud did not understand language. In fact, Freud's interpretation of dreams is where Lacan gets the idea for his terms of metaphor and metonymy. Um, but from Freud's terms, yeah. I think they're condensation and displacement from the uh, later chapters of interpretation of dreams basically like the um the the uh the displacing of like a, a personal characteristic or a s- setting in a dream for a different setting that has nothing to do with it and then the other one would be the um the the uh the, the sharp change in um perspective in dreams right you can go from being in the movie theater to all of a sudden you're in a circus you know so that's sort of the that that's I believe that's the right formulation. I haven't read Interpretation of Dreams in a year, but uh, that's what I remember, I believe. In fact, I'm just rereading it because <laughs> I, I realized yeah, I realize I need to get, because it's, it's a big, big book, obviously, but I, I felt the first yes, time I read it, I barely understood any of it. 
So okay. now that I've gone back to Lac, uh, well, I'm going to Lacona and Zizek. I want to go back to Freud, and, yeah. and get the. Oh, that, that's what I did. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, that's going more into a different topic. We can talk about more like my sort of my coming to more philosophy positions later. My history of that would be, to be a philosophy great topic. Yeah, to discuss. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but back to the uh, the point is that. Yeah, I think that language and morality are very um, Lacanian ideas of the big other that Freud never thought of. Um, there's a quote from Freud where he says that the Oedipus complex, no, yeah, the, the Oedipus complex is the heir of Kant's categorical imperative. And what right. he means by this is that the Oedipus complex is the prohibitions and the no. That's all Freud saw of Kant's categorical imperative. He had a very negative view of Kant, that he thought Kant was just saying, no, 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 you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do anything. So when he says that the Oedipus complex is the heir of the categorical imperative, what I understand this to mean is that because the superego arrives at the end of the Oedipus complex, that the superego is the uh, grandson of the categorical imperative. Um, and in that sense, the superego is all about the prohibitions and the no. And that is what Lacan does not do with the big other. The big other has prohibitions, the big other has no, but the big other also has affirmations, your social roles, um, your, your um, use of language. This is what Freud never had a concept of. And then, okay, I think like, okay, big other makes, that's perfect, I get it. So which is why uh, examples of the big other would be, would be things such as, you know, God all the way to science. You know, like the the, the the big other exists in, in many forms. I, I get that bit. But I think, again, how does that differ from the superego? Because it, this, okay, I, I would just ask it as it is. How does that differ from the superego? Yeah. So Lacan still has the idea of the superego in his philosophy. And most Zizek has it more than him. Because Zizek's point is that the superego is the imperative. And what Zizek kind of does is he reads sort of that like quote from Freud um, and he reads it a different way that I do because he reads it as the categorical imperative is like a you must do. Where Freud read categorical imperative as you must never do, Zizek converts it and goes categorical imperative is Kant saying you must do. It's not saying don't do this, don't do that. It's saying you must do. And for Zizek, the you must do is you must enjoy. And that is one of his main critiques of capital. Superego is enjoy, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, I've just been going through that in his this in this book. Uh, for they yes, know yes. not what they do. He goes really yes. deep into it. Um, I, I just made a video no, on the idea is that the the superego ego imperative is enjoy, consume, be a consumer, and and or you know engage in self help and and this is a, a criticism uh, he even has of like kind of this kind of like pop philosophy self help kind of love yourself, take care of yourself <laughs> endlessly. Um, perfect, perfect. Okay, I think I, I think it's starting to make sense. So again, for Lacan, just to reiterate, just for my understanding, mm -hmm. for Lacan, the big other, he takes morality and language seriously and he connects it to that. Uh, but the mm -hmm. superego, this like delineation between the big other and superego, this, this is more of a Jirikian concept where Jirik takes a superego seriously and he sees that uh, un unlike Freud, that views this idea of the categorical imperative, the Kantian categorical imperative as being this prohibition. For Zizek, it's, uh, what's what do you use? It's it's to do, it's a- Affirmation. Affirmation, sorry, that's it. It's, it's yeah, to do like something. Command or affirmation. Enjoy, whatnot. Yeah, command or affirmation. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so 
this is kind of an ancillary point, but if if you think it's not that important, we we don't have to get into it. But I just yeah. thought we're talking about the big other. Let's let's discuss. So, what does Lacan and Zizek mean when they say the big other doesn't exist? Okay. So the big other doesn't exist is basically a way to say that there is no ultimate structure of reality that we create our structures of reality and then that we apply this sort of big other we create this this idea that there is a structure of reality to then give us comfort that there is no structure of reality um a i don't i don't know if Zizek ever does this but whenever i think about what that means the big other doesn't exist i think of kant's theory of beauty um if if I'll explain it. It's it's actually pretty easy, and I can give two good examples. Um, Kant's theory of beauty is basically that we find things in nature beautiful because it seems as if they were put there on purpose. The seeming of the purposefulness is what makes nature beautiful. For instance, he gives an example of we come across a beautiful crystal in a cave. Well, why is that crystal beautiful? Because it looks like it was there on purpose. It doesn't look like the dirt around it. It doesn't look like the the um, the, the dark cave. It looks like the shining, glimmering thing that someone must have put there on purpose. This is why I think I've never heard anyone else make this connection. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know. But I think this has a very, very true meaning because one of the most common things that we will say when we see a beautiful piece of nature, um, just just experiencing it, we go, this looks like a movie scene. What do we mean by that? We mean that it is looks like it was set up purposefully to look look that way to us. And that is why I think Kant's theory of beauty is still very, very good. It's because we unconsciously understand it because we say things, at least in America, so much like, wow, this is so beautiful. It looks like a movie scene. Totally. Just to interrupt you, mate, sorry, that's a brilliant point because I yeah. was in New Zealand a few months ago, uh, just like on holiday. And yesterday of on a tram, uh, we've got trams in Melbourne. I don't know whether you've got trams where you stay in. And uh, we, uh, uh, some, I met a Kiwi, I met a New Zealander. And the person was like, oh, how do you find New Zealand? I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. It looks Photoshopped. Yep, yep. <laughs> I, I love that you made that connection. Crazy? I've never heard anyone make this connection between that, that phrase and Kant's theory of beauty. But I, I was just, I was just thinking one day, and I was like, "That's really perfect." Amazing. I say that yeah. all the time, and and people that I know say that. It's yeah, yeah. So, but then of course, Jacques and Lacan would say it, it's not a movie scene that there's no structure, and yeah. the other doesn't exist. That's that's the idea, right? But it's the fact that it gives us comfort to think of it as purposeful. That that we think of it as purposeful. So there's the sense of comfort, the sense of enjoyment. In, in jouissance, all that. So yeah. that is the reason why there is no big other. But we, but we create a big other because it gives us comfort and a symbolic grounding. Which again, like we understand, like you said, we have to have the big other to basically exist in society, right? Uh, to have that's language. Yeah. To it's have, a useful fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, precisely. That's that's a. Um, I don't know if Zizek uses that term, but there was a um, a book that came out. I haven't read it yet. Just hundred dollars. I was I was like I'm not spending that, but it's it, it's a collection of writings. Yeah, I'll, I'll wait till it goes cheaper. But it's a collection of writings that came out last year called Useful Fiction, and it's precisely it's it, it, Zizek's in it, uh, Alenka Zupanchit is in it, um, a lot of other Lacanian Hegelian people are in it, and it's basically 
what does this term useful fiction mean and how is it in metaphysics? How is it in culture? It's probably a great book, but I'm not spending a hundred dollars. So yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Just on the topic of Japanshik, I can't, I'm just, I, I already ordered it, but I can't wait to get into a book, What is Sex? Because it's supposed to be. I have not read it. I yeah, can't talk about it. I haven't read it. Best book. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Great. That, 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 that makes sense. Uh, okay. So a uh, last question on Lacan before we get to Christian atheism, um, which I think we need, we need, we need to cover this because for me, this, this is again, one of those moments where when it clicked it, I didn't sleep that night because it was a brilliant concept by Lacan. Yeah. Uh, in so uh okay within within the realm of psychoanalysis um for for lacan uh maybe you could use this to kind of connect it to freud's death drive too uh what is jouissance okay so jouissance it's it, it's sort of like a partial enjoyment with pain um and why it's partial enjoyment is because we can never fully enjoy because our desire will always be incomplete, will always be unfulfilled, object dot. Yeah. And jouissance for Lacan is an opposition to desire. So we, we enjoy to not desire, which is kind of weird. People think that we enjoy, well, <laughs> that's a little bit reductionist. We can, I don't want to get into a lot of clinical structures, but the hysteric enjoys their desiring i'll say that but most neurotics most people that are not hysteric they function in the sense that they enjoy to not desire and desiring is the loss of jouissance so jouissance and desire are in opposition in lacan's uh, psychoanalysis unless you're you know, talking about hysteria but um what this means is that for instance let's say that that and uh, the reason why jouissance is always partial is because we can never again enjoy fully. Um, the desire will never be fully unfulfilled. Uh, fulfilled. One of the examples that I think I can give. I don't think it's the best example. Um, I, but I need to think more about this. But an example that that I think of is when um, we purchase chip bags at the store. Um, due to shrinkflation under capitalism, these chip bags tend to be like twenty percent air, thirty percent air, and like 80 percent chips instead of being full chips. And when we go to and when we go and do that, we know that we're not going to get the full product. We're going for chips. We're not going to get the full chips. We're going to get about eighty percent chips, right? But we still do it, nevertheless. So there's this sense of pain, this recognition that we're gonna that we're going to buy the full product, even though that in the back of our mind we know that we're not going to get the full product. It's not a conscious realization. It's an unconscious thing, right? Where yeah. It's like we're not going to get the full product, nevertheless we go and do it. This is, I think, Jouissance. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think another example Jacek uses again in typical Jacekian manner is uh, it's a bit of a chauvinistic example. It's Jacek after all. Uh, is that uh, he 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 recalls a story of one of his friends, um, one of one of his mates who says that she's uh, oh actually no <laughs> okay here we go. It's, it's quite funny actually. Uh, he says that he was at some conference, some philosophy conference, and there was this yeah. uh, w woman hitting on him, like trying to trying to seduce him, I guess. And then she she told him that, um, oh my my ex partner told me that I I would look perfect if only I lose three or four more kilos, uh, some weight. And then uh -huh. she says, 
don't, don't lose that weight. <laughs> don't lose that weight. He, he, he says that you, because if you lose that weight, then Jewish Sons is gone. Because the, the way yes, that yes. Jewish Sons exists is, is in this lack, in the, in the object cause of desire, like in the emptiness. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that certainly applies a lot to, I don't know, uh, maybe we could kind of do a bit, a bit, a bit of like uh, thought experiments here. Um, how do you think that it kind of like uh, relates a lot to our day-to-day -day, uh, capitalistic life where it's, you know, how the lack, well, you gave one example with the bag of chips, but because mm -hmm. I've always been thinking about how that relates to things like uh, self-help um, or, you know, or like a lot of these like pop motivational speakers, like people like, uh, I don't know, you know, it's like David Goggins that constantly yells at you, do this, do that. And it's it seems like a lot of the way way that self-help works is it's in the fact that the way that the, the reason self-help works is because it doesn't work in some sense. Like, yes. like I'm wondering, it, it, it has to not work fully for it to yes. work. Yes. You know, yes, as yes. in if we if we apply all the principles in self-help and and if it let's say fully we all our desires are fully met, then it's failed mm -hmm. at succeeding. Or maybe let's call it the yes. self-help industrial complex. <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, do you get yeah. what I'm trying to yeah, say? No, I, I'm trying to say that like by the fact that it's not working, it works because of Jason's. So in fact, this ties into another Wakan point that Judek also builds a lot on. Surplus enjoyment or in French, plus du jour. Plus du jour. And yeah. surplus enjoyment is sort of the more... Uh, what I would say, the more practical sense of jouissance. Jouissance is far more clinical, I think. You can make it practical, but in terms of understanding capitalism, plus du jour is the main thing. Surplus enjoyment. Well, why is it called surplus enjoyment? Uh, surplus marks surplus value, right? That's what you think of. And that is a part of it, but it's not the whole part. Um, in my book, I spend like five pages, I think, critiquing various understandings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta keep critiquing various so that people see that you've written a book. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Critiquing various understandings of um, surplus value and how it's read. Um, Zizek, I don't think has the best reading. I think Alenka Zupancic does. But basically, what surplus enjoyment is, is that when we engage in labor, when we engage in enjoyment and capitalism, when we consume, there is this loss of enjoyment because, because consuming fully will, will allow us to stop consuming so but it's not only that we find ourselves in this lack but that also there's this there's this part of consuming which is like a waste uh, that, that's a term Zupanchus uses a waste product of consuming and it is this waste product of consuming that we never want to consume so it's not only just like the lack of being able to continue to consume but it's that this, but but it's that this lack is like a waste product. That if we were to consume, we just want to waste it all. Does that does that kind of make sense? I don't think the waste bit still settled with me. I wonder if you can use okay. some examples to expand. Yeah. Uh, no, okay, um, so I'm sure I get the idea, but I'm trying to like yeah. you know, uh, let's say, yeah. kind of apply it to our day to day life. Yeah, for sure, I think the best example would be labor um, economy and, and labor in general under capitalism. Um, when, when a person goes in for labor, their part of their enjoyment is being taken over by the um, uh, capitalist, right? The surplus value part. Certainly. Um, but yeah, yeah, their value enjoyment. Um, but there's this 
weird sense of jouissance in this because they do it because they get something out of it, even if that involves pain. They get the money, even if that involves wasting their time doing a job they don't want to do, right? And this money that they get is like the thing that tethers them to continue working. Um, and if this tethering were to go away, they would feel waste. There'd be a sense of waste if this tethering, this money that they get would, would go away. Um, and I think that's a way to understand the role of enjoyment and jouissance and plus du jour, surplus enjoyment in capitalism. It's that there's this tethering and being in the labor economy that you enjoy through the suffering. Um, in fact, we can even reference Francis Leotard, right? Who has that very famous uh, paragraph from libidinal economy, where he says that the, uh, the, and the workers enjoyed it. They enjoyed the spit from the capitalists. They enjoyed the filth that the capitalists gave them. This, this type of enjoying through suffering is exactly jouissance. And I think that this applies to labor economy. People enjoy the fact that they're working because if they, be, they enjoy the fact that they're working in this sense of a perverse enjoyment, because it's not a full enjoyment, but it's an enjoyment in that it, you get something out of it, but you also give pain as well. Yeah. And that's, and Jewish songs love that. Cause I was also thinking that's a great point because that, and that's perhaps the, 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 I don't know what, what's the word to use here. The, the tragedy or the crisis of postmodern capitalism, because as we know, in a lot of these kind of white collar jobs, uh, it's not just this kind of, it, it seems like they want to get rid of even the element of Jewish zones because you have to work, but then you're supposed to also kind of love what you do in the sense that they're like, oh, go and work, but, you know, take care in these kind of mindfulness programs and like yes, yes, yes. and self-care things. And it's like, no, 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 just let me do my fucking job and pay me at least. Yes, I would say this, this yeah. is a great example of the real. They're trying to cover the real. They're trying to symbolize the real that let me just do my job. It, it sucks, but you know, I'm going to get some money for it. They're trying to, they're trying to cover that up. They're trying to say, we care about you. We're, we're creating this big other, that this big other loves you, this big other cares about you. And I think that in doing so, they're trying to symbolize the real, but while that may work for a little bit, it's never going to completely work because the real can't be symbolized. People are going to eventually realize that my boss doesn't really care about me. These posters on the wall that say, do your best and uh, like, uh, have a great day. They don't really mean anything, right? That I still don't enjoy my labor. I still don't enjoy my day-to-day -day life. So yeah, yeah I even agree. if your boss cares about you, like it doesn't really matter because the structure you exist in is at the end of the day, yeah. you go and you work. It doesn't matter if you're self-employed exactly. or a business, you still work for money. And 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 that 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 kind of yeah, that kind of traumatic, brutal, real, it, it doesn't yes. really go anywhere. Yeah, beautifully put. Beautifully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think I think that probably I haven't I haven't ever written about this or really thought about it much, but I would say the core of the real in capitalism is that you have to work or you will die. Worker, uh, as uh, Lacan has that famous saying in Ecri, where he says, um, your money or your life, right? The point is, it's a false choice. If your money's gone, under capitalism, you die. If your life's gone, well, you die, right? So you hold someone up, you say your money or your life, either way, they're dead. Basically. Yeah, yeah, I need a third choice. So that's, <laughs> and that's why yeah, yeah, it's a false yeah, choice. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a forced choice, a false choice. Yeah. And I think this is this is this is the real of capitalism that you 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 have a forced choice, your money or your life. Do you wanna 
do you want to live? Do you want to have a great life? Or do you, or I mean, yeah, do you want a great life? Do you want to make money? Or do you not want to live, right? Well, if you don't want to make money, you don't get to live. If you don't want to live, you don't live, right? So it's a forced choice that I think capitalism forces. And I think this is like the core of the real of capitalism, that traumatic real that people don't like to talk about. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I've got uh, two two quite funny examples. Uh, funny, fascinating, yeah. what, absurd, what you may, you may call it on this huh? topic. So my current company, and by the way, this is where I, I'm kind of struggling because I love my job. I find my like my team, lovely bunch of people. Yeah, and, no, um, but, just, but I, I just, I'll, I'll just mention a little bit because I know a lot of people when, when, um, when, when people start giving leftist ideas, there's a couple of red flags that go off people's heads. They go, you've never worked a job in your life. Well, I'm here to tell you that I've worked since I was 14. I've worked at Chick-fil-A. I, I was a shift manager for a year. So I'm, I'm. I've been in the labor force. I've been around people that have worked wage jobs to actually survive. Good thing that my parents pay for rent and they pay for food. But getting that work experience is really important because it helped me see sort of this underside of capitalism, talking to people. Um, during my break, especially uh, this last summer, I, I would talk to the grown adults that, you know, they were actually doing this stuff because they had to put food on the table for their kids. And asking them, like, would you do anything else? Like, like, what, do you see a way out of this life? And they're like, no, I just choose not to think about it. And it's, it's, I think that's, that's the covering of the real that I think capitalism forces you to do. Um, that I think a lot of people willingly do because, because confronting that real is so traumatic, right? Yeah. That if, that I could, that, that there is no way out. If, if I just don't think about it, I just do my daily job. I go to Chick-fil-A, I'm the cashier or whatever. If I don't think about it, um, I just I, I I don't I don't have to confront the real. Yeah, and amidst so, it, of sorry. course, people. No, that's totally fine. Yeah. And amidst it, people need the Jewish zones too, because if to, 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 they need that kind of yeah, the surplus plus de jeu, you know, if, if not if not for the surplus enjoyment, they can't even exist. I would say like it 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 would be too much. Uh, uh no, but mm -hmm. the two examples are quite funny. I thought uh, the first one is uh, I I unfortunately when I was younger, so I'm 25 now. When I was about 21, 22. I, I I got I got caught up in one of these uh, multi-level marketing schemes or like a oh wow uh, yeah so the and I still to this day I would say I'm a bit traumatized by it because all the people I met there just like lovely people you know just like I feel like look I I'm very cynical about human nature I I'm kind of like Jack on this I think yeah. you know as Kafka said God made us on one of his bad days uh but but at the same time though uh these are good people. They were trying their best. They were, you know, trying to improve themselves. And so the way these MLMs work is they are first of all sold to you. So the, the way they cover the real, the traumatic real, that it's at the end of the day, a pyramid scheme where you got to recruit people and sell people products and, and just all that matters is the money at the end of the day, the buck stops at, in fact, the buck is, um, yeah. is that they make it look like a, like a community, a group, a self-help kind of thing. Uh, they call it a, a business mastermind. They use all these terms. They all dress up, dress, dress up in suits. They uh, mm -hmm. read, uh, I don't know, how to win friends and influence people. All these different like yeah. stupid self help books. And uh, but but of course, of course, there are these moments where the real slips in, and that is when they'll send you a message: Why haven't you bought your products today? Why haven't you made this payment? Or 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 they'll sit down with you with the contract, be like, you you got to buy this, buy this, buy this. And and so there's there's only so much you can try to cover up the real. At one point, the real shows up, and of course, mm -hmm. after a while, I realized this is 
I, I, I guess the real confronted me so much to the point that I'm yeah. still thinking about it. And I'm, I still, cause I still feel bad because I did the same thing to others where I went and tried to recruit them into the pyramid scheme and like say, Oh, it's about mentorship. You know, it'll help your life. And you know, man, I was 21, you know, when you're 21, a mentor would be great. I wish I had a mentor when I was yeah. 20, 21 and, and that would be yeah. really, really beneficial. Uh, but it's not really a mentor. It's just a guy telling you, Oh, you do, you know, like, like really silly advice. Like, uh, I don't know, make, make a list, be accountable. No shit, Sherlock. Like, come on, you don't need yeah, a mentor yeah. for that. That's like an obvious thing, right? And then, but but pay four hundred dollars for that bit of advice. So, so it was it was kind yeah. of kind of insane. And then that's that's one example. So where the real showed up. The other example. This is quite a recent one. Is so I work for a big corporation, and um, and again, it's this is hard for me because I love my job. I I love my team, and I would also say. I, I've, as a leftist, I'm very critical of structures. I don't really focus too much on individuals. I, I look at yeah, things yeah. at a sociological level because as, as Lacan said, uh, your desire is the desire of the other, right? So yep. our desire is in this kind of authentic desire that comes out of nowhere. It's a structure, it's yep. the yep. other. Yep. Um, is that, so they were talking about climate goals. They were talking about, oh, we want our diversity. Uh, we want our diversity. We want uh, our, to hit our climate goals uh, to become mm -hmm. like a, a net zero company. Great, great things. It's very important. Yeah. We're amidst an ecological crisis. But then, of course, comes in the real. We have to make sure yeah. that uh, we have a revenue of $5 billion this year. So yeah. if that doesn't happen, all those things are out of the out of the door. You know, like if we don't make money, forget about the, the climate, forget about the uh, diversity, getting more women, because I work for a, a tech company, getting more women in tech, all of that. And, and I, I was like, my God, uh, I really wish you read some Jacques Lacan because this is, yep, yep. you know, it's yeah. unbelievable. Um, but anyway, I just want to try and like, that yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, I'm, I'm, I'll assume that they kind of like try and bring it in afterwards. So like, we have all these great goals, and then they're like, by the way, this is yeah, five billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never, it's never like in in you know, in big font. It's just another goal. Yeah. But we all know that's the goal that exactly. matters. Yeah, exactly. Because you can never you can never put the real in that symbolization that everything else is in. And that's why it's the real. Yeah. It can't be symbolized. Yeah. 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 I, I think, I think I, I love this because like all these examples really do help uh, solidify those concepts and, and show how pertinent they are, especially for our times. Uh, okay. Hunter, sorry. I had to share that with you, but uh, yeah. okay. So just, just for context, just for context, yeah. uh, before I ask you this, I have about like 20 more minutes, 20 or 30 more minutes. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah like that, that, that's great because this is, in fact, the last thing I want to discuss uh, for this conversation. I am thoroughly enjoying this, mate. You, you, you can't even imagine how much I'm learning right now. Um, so, again, before I ask you the question, I'll mm -hmm. play a clip of Jack explaining what his view of Christian atheism is, just so that the viewer yeah. has, a, has a bit of context as to what we're talking about. But I know we already made a video, so I'll leave a link to that video too. Um, what is Christian atheism? The way I read Christianity, if you take it really seriously, it's really a religion of atheism. In what sense? And Hegel knew this. He says, the big problem is what died on the cross. Hegel says, it's not just, you read Christianity in a pagan way. If you think God is up there, he sent us a messenger, 
And then messenger died and cried, and God says, God the Father, okay, my son, come back to me. It didn't work. Next time, better luck, and so on. <laughs> no, Hegel says, what dies on the cross is the very God of beyond. This idea that there is a higher power up there, you know what's so paradoxical of Christianity for me? Again, uh, in all other, all, more or less, religions, the way we are here, li we live a fallen life, and the only way to get back to God, contact, is to do good works, purify yourself, whatever, through mystical exercise, to good deeds, and so on, to climb up again. I came in Christianity, don't people notice this? Something totally different happens. And Chesterton, my good Catholic theologist, knew it. He says that that moment, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, God, why have you forsaken me? It means this. How do you identify with God? Let's say I feel abandoned, God has left me, I'm in a godless world. The Christian answer again is not, okay, let me pray hard, do good things, maybe I will reestablish contact. It's to say, but at that very point, when I feel abandoned by God, I'm identified with, uh, with Christ on the cross who felt the same. That is to say, as Hegel puts it very precisely, uh, I overcome the division from God by transposing it into God himself. This idea that my distance from God is inscribed into God himself. The consequences of this are then pretty radical. For example, I think it's totally wrong reading the usual one uh, that uh, what will be second coming? Somehow Christ will come again. No, Christ is dead. He is already here in Holy Spirit. What is Holy Spirit or ghost? I don't know how you read it. Is, I simplify it very much. It is, uh, it is the community of believers. And as Christ says, my God, in the gospel, when he's asked by one of his pupils, how will we know that you are still alive, that you will come? He says, whenever there is love between two of you, I am there. And I take this totally literally. Second coming means that you discover that what you are waiting for, oh my God, God left us, maybe he will come again, is already here in the community of believers. You don't need God as an old guy up there, a secret guarantee, and so on and so on. Intelligent theologists knew this. Like even a conservative, like Claudel, Paul Claudel, the great poet, he said the ultimate mystery of Christianity is not that we are impotent without God, but that God is impotent without us. Okay, it gets more complex, but in this sense, I mean it quite literally about being an atheist Christian. I specifically don't mean all those simplistic ideas that Christianity can be realized in new communist society or whatever, all those dreams. No, I think that, again, the secret core of Christianity is precisely this acceptance of being on your own as precisely divine gift. You know, what is the Christian answer when you feel alone, abandoned by God, just depending on yourself? The message is, 
But this is God's gift to you. This is freedom that God gave us. It's much more complex situation. I don't want to lose time now. I just want to tell you that don't, don't you just think that this is some crazy obscenity. Many theologists today are moving in this direction. Yeah. So I think Christian atheism is reading the Bible not through this new atheist lens where you're like, this is outrageous, this is contradictory, but it's reading the Bible in a way to try and bring truth out of the Bible where the biblical writers did not even mean to put it, right? Sort of the, it's a very Hegelian way of looking at it. You're sort of undermining the text through reading the text and not putting all this extra stuff on there that it's contradictory, it's crazy, it's anti-science or whatever. And, and, and you're reading the text just as it is. And this is why it's a very Hegelian reading because it's the inversion of a fundamentalist reading because you're not literally arguing that Noah's Ark is real, right? You're, you're giving a, you're reading it as it is, but you're not arguing some sort of realist interpretation, but you're still reading it as it is. You're not putting all this other information into it like the new atheists do. I think that's the main difference in a Christian atheist uh, reading of the Bible than a new atheist reading of the Bible, like Christopher Hitchens. The Dawkins, uh, whatnot. That, that crowd, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Richard Dawkins, yeah. So follow-up question to that is perhaps, of course, as we read it via the Christian atheism lens, is uh, uh, the crucifixion, where you know Christ goes, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Father, Father, why have thou forsaken me? Which, as we all know, uh, Hegel, Chesterton, um, Jacques, of course, yeah. Uh, says that it's 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 the only religion where God himself momentarily becomes an atheist. Uh, yep. Or another reading I've 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 had I've, I've I don't know where I saw this. Certainly, may, maybe a Lacanian for sure or a Hegelian is that in some sense Christ on the cross uh, confronts the real, the traumatic void, nothingness, and that's yes. the moment where. God becomes an atheist because what's important yeah. here is, uh, unlike Islam, for instance, uh, Christ is not a prophet. Christ is God, mm -hmm. and God dies. Only. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, oh, would you challenge that? Oh. Well, in historical forms of Christianity, not really. Like early forms of Christianity, Arianism, for instance. Um, even Saint Paul himself did not think that Jesus was literally God, um, and the consensus of modern uh, biblical scholars is is that the bible does not explicitly endorse that jesus is god it doesn't explicitly endorse the trinity um the trinitarian doctrine was sort of put into christianity at the at the nicene council which was like 800 years or something after um i don't know 800 it was it was a it was a period after jesus's death it was maybe 800 years or so and this is when the sort of the Trinitarian doctrine that has continued today. Um, but I think that reading the Trinity in this way, I think reading the Bible in this way is is fine because it's a very Hegelian way of reading because Hegel's way of reading the Bible is a Trinitarian view. So, yeah, he's a Protestant. But yeah, I just wanted to be clear. That, yeah. Interesting, because I mean, I, I don't know much about the history of Christianity. Uh, I, I read Christianity very philosophically and theologically. Um, but in that case, when in the crucifixion, when Christ goes, Father, Father, why have thou, why have thou forsaken me? And here's there's like a shift uh, where the you know Christ becomes an atheist. How do you read that? What's your understanding of that? Uh, you know, as let's say the way Zizek would put it, or you know, forget about Zizek. How would you read the crucifixion? Yeah. So 
I think the crucifixion, I, I, I would, I would tend to agree with Jijak a lot that, that I think it's this like suspension of, of the um, big other, for instance, it, it, it's a suspension of the big other for a moment. And then in that moment, you confront the real, um, that there is the, that the big other doesn't exist. Basically that Jesus confronted the real, the big other doesn't exist. It would sort of be the real, I'd say, uh, would be the reading I, I did, um, of that interesting um, and, and that is that is so fascinating isn't it because it's like this paradox of of how you would have that in a in a book that in fact all the the book talks about is the big other and in the new testament yep. that's an interesting point so what's your reading then in in the same video you bring up job and you say yeah if i'm wrong don't you say this is one of your original con concepts so how do you read the book of job in the bible and the, the critical yeah. ideology, in fact, also. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, not the book of Job. That's that's Zizek. Um, I I have a I have a original reading of, of Exodus. The, um, of Exodus, correct. Uh, yeah, of a verse in Exodus. Yeah. Uh, actually, how, how shall we do this? Maybe maybe first we'll discuss why is the book of Job the first critical ideology, and then we'll get to the book of Exodus and your reading of the book of sure. Exodus. Yeah. It all began with the book of Job. As we all know, things turned out bad for Job. He loses everything, his house, his family, his possessions, and so on. Three friends visit him, and each of them tries to justify Job's misfortunes. The greatness of Job is that he does not accept this deeper meaning. When, towards the end of the book of Job, God himself appears, God gives right to Job. He says everything that the theological friends were telling Job is false, everything Job was saying is true. No meaning in catastrophes. Here we have the first step in the direction of delegitimizing suffering. Stay with me. Don't leave me. The contrast between Judaism and Christianity is the contrast between anxiety and love. The idea is that the Jewish God is the God of the abyss of the other's desire. Terrible things happen. God is in charge, but we do not know what the big other God wants from us. What is the divine desire? To designate this traumatic experience, Lacan used the Italian phrase, che vuoi? What do you want? This terrifying question, but what do you want from me? The idea is that Judaism persists in this anxiety, like God remains this enigmatic, terrifying other. And then Christianity resolves the tension through love. By sacrificing his son, God demonstrates that he loves us. So it's a kind of a imaginary, sentimental even, resolution of a situation of radical anxiety.
forgive. If this were to be the case, then Christianity would have been kind of ideological reversal or pacification of the deep, much more shattering Jewish insight. But I think one can read the Christian gesture in a much more radical way. This is what the sequence of crucifixion in Scorsese's film shows us. What dies on the cross is precisely this guarantee of the big other. The message of Christianity is here radically atheist. It's the death of Christ is not any kind of redemption or commercial affair in the sense of Christ suffers to pay for our sins, pay to whom, for what, and so on. It's simply the disintegration of the God which guarantees the meaning of our lives. And that's the meaning of that famous phrase, Eli Eli Lama Sabaktami, Father, why have you forsaken me? just before Christ's death, we get what in psychoanalytic terms we call subjective destitution. Stepping out totally of the domain of symbolic identification. Cancelling or suspending the entire field of symbolic authority, the entire field of the big other. Of course, we cannot know what God wants from us because there is no God. This is the Jesus Christ who says, among other things, I bring sword, not peace. If you don't hate your father, your mother, you are not my follower. Of course, this doesn't mean that you should actively hate or kill your parents. I think that Family relations stand here for hierarchic social relations. The message of Christ is, I'm dying, but my death itself is good news. It means you are alone, left to your freedom, be in the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, which is just the community of believers. It's wrong to think that the second coming will be that Christ as a figure will return somehow. Christ is already here when believers form an emancipatory collective. This is why I claim that the only way really to be an atheist is to go through Christianity. Christianity is much more atheist than the usual atheism, which can claim there is no God and so on, but nonetheless it retains a certain trust into the big other. This big other can be called natural necessity, evolution, or whatever. We humans are nonetheless reduced to a position within a harmonious whole of evolution, whatever. But the difficult thing to accept is, again, that there is no big other, no point of reference which guarantees meaning. I actually just wrote a uh, paper about the Book of Job yesterday for a class. Um, so 
Oh my, uh, it's still fresh. sharing it, I would love to read it sometime. Yeah, please. Yeah, it's really short. It's it's like it's like a page. It's, but it, the point was just to elucidate a common theme and then compare it with Kierkegaard's reading of Abraham. Uh, but basically, what what Job is a critique of ideology is because the story of Job is that Job is this very blessed, good man, good follower of God, and all of a sudden, God being tempted by Satan, as the story goes. God just starts to like torture him and like just kind of take all his stuff. He takes his property and just tortures him. And Job's really confused. And he's like, am I going to stop loving God? And he goes to his friends and he's like, guys, God is torturing me. He's taking away all my stuff. Do I still love him? And his friends are like, yes, you must love God, right? You must, you must. And basically all his friends, after trying to tell him to love God, um, the, Job and his friends, the story goes, they sit in silence for seven days. They just don't say a thing. Job's thinking, do I still love God? Do I want to um, give up my faith and stop loving God? And eventually, Job breaks the seven days and he says, he basically exclaims, like, 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 uh, why must I uh, love God if he's doing all this stuff? Is, is he really all loving if he's doing all this stuff? And his friends are like, no, you, you must, you, you must love God again. Um, and he's like, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think I want to. Um, now, eventually the story gets to the point where God appears to Job again, gives him back all his stuff because, and, 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 and then Job starts loving God again in the sense that he could only go through this suffering. He, he could only come to this point of realization, this point of freedom if he went through the suffering, and this is a Hegelian point, I would argue that I think Zizek does too, maybe, um, is, is that Job could only get to this point of freedom, of bliss, of being in God's love, getting all his positions back, being God says he loves him and all that, if he went through the suffering of being tortured and taken away and all this. The reason why it's a critique of ideology is because Job questions that the big other exists. He goes, I call out to the big other. Yeah, I just, why, why does, does the big other exist in the sense that do why do I have to follow the big other right and eventually he decides to and this is why it is both a critique of ideology and an affirmation of ideology because Zizek's whole point is that no one's outside of ideology just like Job which is why he falls back into his notion of yes God is loving I for I I I, uh, I apologize for all my questions and my questioning of faith and this is because like ideology, you can never get outside of it. And so he can never get outside of his notion of God because that is the ideology that he's a part of. And that's the, and that's that unconsciousness. Um, as Lacan would say, the, the God, uh, instead of God is dead, like Nietzsche says, God is unconscious. God is unconscious in Job. And the, that structure of divineness, of looking for an, a beyond, looking for a, um, a caregiver of love, that is still in Job, and that's why it is both a critique of ideology and a affirmation of ideology. Beautifully put, because obviously, uh, for the person who's not familiar with Zizek at all, the idea is, uh, you know, the Matrix, red pill, blue pill. Zizek's yeah. like, no, nah, that's a stupid choice. I need a, I need a third pill, uh, because we yeah. can't step out of ideology in that sense. And and just an ancillary point, in fact, in this book, uh, Peter Rollins, who's heavily influenced yeah. by Jacques Lacan and Hegel, he, he even says that a book of Job is a good uh, example that in the Christian tradition, being angry at God, saying, what the fuck, bro? Like really, really 
kind of rebelling against God is a part of the Christian tradition. It's not antithetical yeah. to Christianity. And, and, and in a sense, this is a very Hegelian thing I'm going to say, but it's sort of like when Hegel says that spirit must other itself to realize itself, to return to itself in a higher form. Spirit, Christian religion, must question God to then return to the to then return to its sense of no God exists. That is the higher form of after the question. So they have to other itself through the question to then return. Yeah. Exactly. Or put it more existentially, perhaps the only way yeah. to be an authentic Christian is by being an atheist. It's via atheism yeah, being an authentic Christian. Yeah, beautifully put. Um, okay, now this is exciting because this is one of your original concepts. Um, what's your reading of Exodus 33, 20? where it says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Yeah. So I see this as the ultimate sense of the um, of God concealing himself from Moses. And the way that he conceals himself is in the sense that the big other doesn't exist. So this metaphor of concealing God's face is, is because following Hegel's notion of, of, of recognition, we recognize ourselves as as who we are, as free and stuff. If we see the other, if we have their recognition and a mutual recognition, but because God shields His face, this is to say that God does not exist, right? Because He refuses that mutual recognition that is required for a symbolic existence, right? Um, and I think that 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 reading that He shields His face. Is, is, is to say that when Moses looks, all he sees is the void. He doesn't see, he doesn't see God, he doesn't see the big other, he just sees the real confront him. And that is the shielding of the face. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's different readings of this of uh, this this part of the Bible. For instance, in the Quran, um, God does not shield his face. I believe he breaks the mountain on which Moses is standing. Um, or he like not the entire mountain of Mount Sinai, but perhaps he like cracks the ground or something to instill this rift between him and Moses. That is the rift between the always divine, always out there that can never be realized and the human, which with a Hegelian sense, we would understand that the divine that is always out there is actually always already with us. Yeah. Right? In, the sense that, in the sense that we are our own creator of, um, of these myths, of these religions. But that, that would be the more Jekian reading. To say a more mystical reading, you could say, is that the divine is always already with us because the divine is simply that unity of, of reality, of, of existence that is always permeating. And our experience is simply experiencing that permeation of the unity of reality. Yeah, yeah. So. And of course, the, the latter part, that's, that's, that's a brilliant insight because the latter part of the, that verse would, of course, for no one may see me and live is if you confront yes. the real it's too traumatic yeah. after we confront it yeah uh okay uh hunter my la last question and this is just for people uh perhaps you could give a word of advice i like to do this with uh serious thinkers uh and, and ask them this question so if anyone wants to study philosophy perhaps even one day write their own book uh into these rather abstruse difficult concepts how, what advice would you have uh, to anyone wanting to study philosophy, specifically maybe Lacan and Hegel, Zizek? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, um, like, like some book recommendations, I can pull some books out. 
Oh, no, I mean, it doesn't have to be whatever. Like, like let's say just, it's a very, very open-ended question. If you want to give book recommendations, yeah. sure, but... Yeah, I mean, I can do that as well. But I would say that YouTube videos is a great place to start. Type in Zizek on YouTube and you have thousands of videos to watch. His lectures are okay. The issue with his lectures is that Zizek is very rambly, right? And I think I'm, I do this a lot too. I, my thoughts just go very fast. And so I want to say them all, but. Oh, but you're so um, much and, more clearer than Zizek. Because Zizek, yeah, he, I tried he it. one of his points, you got to watch a hundred videos, but with oh, he's yeah. good examples. So that helps. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to try to be clearer than that. But uh, there's five minute clips, 10 minute clips, 15 minute clips of Zizek that are on YouTube. They're much better because they're, these very clear as you can get ideas from Zizek. And they're not just these rambly stories where he talks about Stalin and then ties them to Heidegger, right? Like, you know, that, that happens a lot in the lectures, right? So if you want these very clear um, stuff, you can find them. For instance, his talk about, he has various talks about God that are like 10 minutes, five minutes. His talk about ideology, uh, his example of the kinder egg, which is too much to go into now, but it's a great way to explain the shift between Hegel and Kant's metaphysics. Um, there's these very good bite-sized videos can be understood in 10, 15 minutes, right? Um, I think YouTube is the best place to start. Um, I wish I started at YouTube. I didn't really. Um, but I, I think that those are really good places to start. If you want Hegel, I would hold off if you have not read a lot of philosophy yet. Um, if you want to introduction to philosophy gotta read the ancients i am a strong believer in reading the ancients i myself have read i guess six no i've read seven of plato's dialogues i believe i've read aristotle's metaphysics i've read his nicomachean ethics i've read his categories i'm a strong believer in reading the ancients and i think that to have any strong philosophical foundation you must um i gave the story earlier how i started with baudrillard well uh about december i started to read the ancients. And I read the ancients from December until April. And I read all of the most important parts of ancient philosophy in that time. Because um, I realized that ideas were being talked about, mentioning of Plato, mentioning of Aristotle, and I just didn't know what they were talking about. Offhand mentions that the author assumed that everyone should know. And I was like, well, if I'm reading these complicated thinkers, I should be re able to recognize offhand mentions. Um, and that's why reading the ancients is so important. Um, I'll, I'll give a recommendation to read the first ancient would be, um, this book, Plato's Five oh, Dialogues, yeah. Classics. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so really good dialogues here. Euthypyro, Apology, Credo, Meno, Phaedo. These are I'll great dialogues. Them. And in the description for, to that book, to play to five dialogues. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's back at classics. Find it on Amazon. Yeah, um, it's very short. I, I mean, like we're we're looking at a hundred fifty page book. You can knock this out in less than a week, and uh, it it it's beautiful. It's the first Plato that I read. Um, I read the Republic after this, which is another must. But reading this is very good. You may not understand all of it at first, but that's okay. Uh, I got the main ideas, and then once I read more philosophy and was more antiquated with like sort of erudite language, I was able to go back and read it. It's not that difficult when we're when when we're, when we're comparing it to something like Hegel or Kant yeah. or Lacan, and it's also just very good as like a rudimentary understanding of what like knowledge is and what metaphysics means and what are, what does it mean for things to exist and not exist and 
these very rudimentary ideas in philosophy that I think the ancients portray better than any other thinker um, is why you should read the ancients, right? So that's what I would say. We'll start with the ancients and kind of go from there. I read in, I, I read in order. I read ancients, medievals, early modern, and I got eventually to Hegel. And yeah, so beautiful. Yeah, I like how you connected all of that like a thread of way. And of course, while doing that, one could consume some YouTube videos. Probably even watch uh, some of Zizek's documentaries if you want some bit of philosophical yeah. entertainment, perhaps. Yeah, yeah his, his documentaries are good. Um, I would say the first one I like more. It's more Lacanian. Um, the second one is far more like Marxian oriented, which I can get that anytime. It's eh. I enjoy the more Lacanian side of Zizek than the Marxian side because uh, I'm not that much of a Marxist. If yeah, me too. Call yeah. myself. Yeah, I'm like adjacent to Marxism, um, but. I think that his first, I think it's called like, oh gosh, I can't remember the name. It came out in 2006, whatever whatever that one is. Uh, that's the one that should be watched first. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think we can uh, conclude that, Hunter. This was a great yeah. conversation. I, as I already said many times, I thoroughly enjoyed it and found it extremely insightful. Took a lot of notes, so that's always a good good point, a good good sign for me to start off from. But uh, yeah, mate. Uh, so again, your book, Conspiracy and Subject, it's available on Amazon. Um, I'll leave a link to your YouTube channel. But anything else you want to shout out? Um, not really. Uh, if they want to get in contact with me, they can leave a comment on a video, and I can give them my Instagram. I don't really want to. It's a personal Instagram, so I don't really want to give it out to everyone, but. Someone wants to reach out and talk, do an interview, whatever, then I'm happy to give it out to them. So beautiful. Thanks, yeah. Hunter. Appreciate it. Take care, man. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay.